Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk here to welcome you to another edition of Valley Writers Read. Tonight, Bonnie Hearn Hill and her husband Larry will be reading a story entitled Johnny Ray and Miss Kilgallen. If your sweetheart sends a letter of goodbye, it's no secret you feel better if you cry. Here are Bonnie and Larry. When In the first chapter, Johnny Ray is the mystery guest on What's My Line? Distracted because her old enemy, Frank Sinatra, has been maligning her appearance in his nightclub act, Dorothy, whom Sinatra had dubbed the Chinless Wonder, is more concerned about what the TV viewers think of her profile than the identity of the mystery guest, and is furious when Arlene Francis guesses his identity. Johnny catches up with her backstage and helps himself to the vodka in her dressing room. He tells her that he feels she's been too hard on him in her column, and she defends what she's written. He sympathizes with her about Sinatra's public attack. The singer hates him, too, he says. Dorothy begins to soften toward Johnny, but when he makes a lewd remark about her body, she demands that he leave the dressing room and swears at him as she slams the door behind him. Johnny, Friday, broad daylight. I'm still picturing Kilgallen's shape while I sprint from the stage door to Maury's caddy. Fans buying early tickets for tonight's show have spotted me and are in squealing pursuit. I dive into the waiting sedan's back seat. Hit it, Maury, I shout. Fists pelt the caddy's roof. Faces splotch against the windows. Tires crunch ice. Checking to see if I'm in one piece, I let my mind wander to those low, roving hills back home. I'm hanging on to our Holstein Dinah's tail. My feet are up on her flanks. She's clomping along behind Rover, my shepherd mix. I'm probably thinking life always will be this complete, this full of freedom. I've suffered awful indignity since, however, striking out from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, the stands of cedar, cypress, and ash, the one-room schoolhouse, Dinah, Rover. God, place a blade of grass between my teeth, and I'm exactly what Maury Lane would have me be. Hit it, Maury, I yell again at the back of his balding plate. Like a bird, man, he says. My devoted fans, mostly kids, Drop from the moving car like bees do a hive if you jostle it with a stick. I turn to see their figures in the gray afternoon. Like an owl, I say, Jesus, watch it. Maury spins the wheel like a great sea captain lost in a storm. Call me owl again, you radical. I spill you out. Let him cut you to ribbons. I jerk my top coat around so I can examine it. They're using razors again. My coat's in shreds. Lucky they didn't take a kidney, I say. Maury's found a groove in the traffic. Where's the majesty going? What's in the sack? Dope? The bag of platters I snatched from backstage has been slashed, but the recordings seem to be intact. Look through those Coke bottle glasses of yours and stay in the right lane, I say. 
Got me a birthday party gig, East 68th and Park. Maury bounces. My earnings have made him round as a beach ball. You're dangerous, he screams. I ain't staying to chaperone you, some posh penthouse, for Christ's sake. Wow, how'll we act? No owl to hoot. I spot a tavern, I know. Decide I better line my stomach. Besides, I'm a little antsy. The voice of Broadway did end our first meeting with a curse. But then she also phoned my record company to request these platters for her daughter's sweet 16 party. Maybe I just like being sworn at by classy women. Or maybe I'm right, and the voice of Broadway kind of dug me as much as I dug her. Either way, I know what I need right now. Stop up at this corner, I say. Maury is bobbing, trying to catch me in the rear view. You criminal. It's past noon. Playing the concerned manager now, the old song plugger. We got a show in three hours. Four hours, I say, and I'm hip. Still need something in my tummy. Got to have breakfast. Breakfast? You should be arrested. Maury's found the tavern through his thick glasses. Where? This gin mill? Sure, I have to laugh at the guy. I love him is the sad truth. They serve cold beer and hard-boiled eggs, don't they? Then I hear this shriek of brakes, and after a long second, I'm thrown damn near up in the front with Maury. Another minute, and I know it ain't too bad. A New York rear-ender is all, or sedan with some little Studebaker ahead of us. Studebaker guy jumps out. So do I, and I look back once to see Maury slowly ease out his side, squint up at the buildings like some rube his first time in Manhattan. One more minute, and I'm drinking breakfast, thinking about the lady. Dorothy. At her insistence, the dining room in the 68th Street address had remained without a clock for years. Dick at first found her aversion charming. Years passed, and so did the charm. Finally, he demanded that she explain her problem with clocks. They tick, she had told him. He pointed out that they also kept her from being late, to which she replied that she wasn't the one who missed appointments. As most of their conversations, this one had drifted into polite sniping. Dorothy since had ignored a defiantly ugly pendulum piece on the wall of their bedroom, which after her move to the fifth floor was in truth Dick's alone. Another timepiece, a bell jar, appeared in the dining room a few weeks later. It rested today, as always, on a buffet behind them. As they prepared for their daily radio show early that morning, Dorothy was conscious of its soft whirring. Sitting at the dining room table, the WOR microphone before her, she watched Dick settle across from her. His business suit lacked its hard edges. His actor's good looks had grown mealy from heavy drinking. As usual this morning, he could be counted on to be on time, but that was about all. No doubt she'd have to carry the show again, and she would. Their lifestyle depended on it. The director signaled. The tow-headed technician watched, as nervous as if it were his first time. Dick responded on cue. Good morning, darling, he said in his rich baritone. It's time for Dorothy and Dick. My, this is great orange juice. It's Juicy Jim, our favorite, she responded with exaggerated enthusiasm. Would you like some toast? He clinked two champagne glasses, gave her an evil wink. No, darling, but I'd like to toast you. Again, he rang the crystal. Eleven years of Dorothy and Dick, can you believe it? 
11 years. We certainly had a marvelous time, met wonderful people along the way. Interesting ones, wouldn't you say? Now what, she wondered. Yes, we have. Your mystery guest Sunday night on What's My Line, for instance. She hadn't expected that one. Yes, the Prince of Wales. You must mean Johnny Ray, the Nabob of Saab. She jerked her head up, catching only Dick's placid smirk. Mr. Ray is a talented performer. The guy with the rubber face and squirt gun eyes. Enough. There is an indefinable something in Johnny Ray's voice, she said, an articulation of his loneliness. But, sweetie, Elvis is the one with art in his pelvis. Articulation, too. Jesus Christ. She bit back her anger. Maybe their banter today approached the sparkle of years past. She promised herself to hold their bickering to a pace the listeners might enjoy. Right now the show was all important. If their audience moved away, so would Juicy Jim and the rest of the sponsors who contributed to their 60,000-whatever yearly reward for conversing with each other every morning. Straightening her shoulders, she continued to talk into the mic, forcing a smile as if the world could see as well as hear her. Knowing the birthday party would swim in teenage pastel, Dorothy changed into a black dress. A courier had picked up her column, and she was starting to relax before guests arrived. Over a cup of coffee, she watched Dick devour Eggs Benedict at the table from which they'd broadcast earlier. Really, Dick, Eggs Benedict in the afternoon? He sat as still as a long-discarded movie show card while Julian poured him champagne. Julian held the bottle above an empty glass and raised his brow at her. She shook her head, then watched with distaste as he refilled Dick's glass. Watching him cut into hollandaise-drenched Canadian bacon, she reminded herself as long as they kept the show and their family together, all would be tolerable. After Julian was out of earshot, she said, I could have done without the Johnny Ray dig. Just trying to breathe life into the show, darling. He put down his fork, reached for the champagne. Besides, you've harmed the guy more in print than anything I said. Perhaps. It was true, of course, but Johnny had said he didn't want a war, and in spite of the oath with which she'd ended their meeting, neither did she. But that doesn't matter now. We've declared a truce. He cocked an eyebrow ever so slightly. Since when? Since last night. The coffee and conversation made her pulse pound. She glanced at the bell jar. Are you going to miss the party? Afraid so, he said. I'll be back late. I'm meeting with some people about the club. For an actor, he was a poor liar. Or maybe he just didn't care enough to make the role he played at home believable. Looking into his eyes was like trying to gauge the depth of a glassy pond. I know how late your meetings run, she said. Money people, he put in, must quell the nasty rumor I'm Mr. Dorothy Kilgallen. She pushed away from the table. Tired, she thought, already bushed and the evening hadn't started. Gosh, she said, you mean being the voice of Boston Blackie isn't enough for you? Don't knock it. Blackie's bought us both a drink now and again. So has breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. She circled the table and stood behind him. Try to be back at a civilized hour. We've much to go over for tomorrow's show. It's been flat lately. Not so today, he said with a self-satisfied smile. I'm sure we owe that to you. Now that you mention it, I wasn't bad. 
No, she said, but what about tomorrow? After you've had a few bottles of that, she added silently. Tomorrow will take care of itself if you'll just relax. He held up a finger. Quit giving Sinatra the satisfaction of getting your goat. Our listeners hear it in your voice. Nonsense. She glared down, watched his head shake slowly left to right. Okay, okay. He heaved a dramatic sigh. So we get a few letters addressed to the chinless wonder. Hearing the expression from his lips almost dropped her. She felt as if she were caving in, the pain within her chest real enough to make her bite her lip to keep from crying out. Dick, she said in a small rush of breath. His head moved faster, side to side. A few letters, he said. Not like the TV show. A dozen is all, not hundreds, not thousands for Christ's sake. But it's driving you crazy. You've played right into the little mobster's greasy hands. Please. Her legs wobbled. She leaned against the table and picked up the champagne bottle. You don't sound natural anymore, Dick continued. A quick turn of her hand and the remaining champagne fell away from the neck of the bottle, fizzing like a brook in his graying hair. At least, she said finally, I sound sober. As he calmly traipsed away from the table, wet head and all, he shouted, Hubba hubba, darling, hubba hubba. In his sputtering words, she heard a thin, sad echo of gaiety from their yesterdays. Johnny, the five-story townhouse is on East 68th between Madison and Park, final neighborhood on the Monopoly board. I tell the cabbie to drop me, then count out his fee and tip from the bar change in my suit pocket. He goes, thanks, pal. I show him my Hollywood choppers. His eyes get big. Hey, ain't you the cry guy? I dash for the steps. The air is ashy, cold against my throat, and I worry, as usual, about my pipes. An Uncle Tom butler answers my ring, cools on me like he's bored to death. I take a swipe at the egg crumbs and salt on my upper lip, gather platters and shredded coat to my chest. Johnny Ray to see... Dorothy Kilgallen, I tell the suede. Without the cotton top, he could be Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, raucous alto out of Houston, damn fine blues voice of his own. Is she expecting you? Tell her I'm an errand boy running over some records she requested for her daughter's birthday bash. This gets me a ride up an elevator that groans from the stress. Vincent ushers me down a hall that reflects our walk off every surface. Cold, man. Doors open into a bright parlor. Lots of jailbait swish around in rustling taffeta. Young boys stand in stiff poses, afraid to flare their acne. Two teenage sheiks send me dark stares. A white Steinway baby grand sits in the center of the action like a pool of milk. Before I see her, I know she's near. The honest-to-God delight in her voice rings in my hearing aid. She says something to the butler then takes my sack of record albums. I had no idea you'd come in person, she says. She is in simple black, kind of a vampy look, with her dark hair, Betty Boop eyes. Her skin is alabaster, but soft-looking. She stands more confident on her own turf, a hip chick, sending little sex waves, different than in the CBS green room, rank fan mail strewn on her dressing table, and don't ever tell me about rank fan mail. I head straight for the Steinway. The kids are in shock, my name on their whispers. 
I try the keys, and it's in tune enough for me. Ready to raise a little hell, I ask? Kilgallen looks small and pale among these animals. She sends me a brave smile. I give them a crash course in boogie-woogie, and don't tell me about boogie-woogie. Then I settle down and go into Satchmo. Always had him down pat. Give them Louis and Tea Garden on St. James Infirmary, by God. A duet. I doubt they know that. I feel I'm dragging them down, so I give them a snatch of Edith Piaf to punish them more. Then figure, hell, why not? Since I invented him, I stand and give him Elvis, complete with bumps and grinds. My favorite, shouts the daughter. Later I chat with the brats, watch them dance to my records. Kilgallen brings me a spiked punch, and for some reason I don't ask her to dance, though I know it's what she'd like. Finally, it's time I got to go. Showtime downtown, I say. I'll drive you, she says. After your kindness, it's the least I can do. Kindness or no kindness, women like her don't play chauffeur to guys like me. I got nothing to add to that, so I just stand there. Then I think of some smart-ass answers, but stay buttoned up. She looks at me with those huge, soft eyes, and I can't help it. I reach out and touch her bare shoulder, then her cheek with the backs of my fingers. I'd like that an awful lot, I say. Dorothy. In the weeks following the party, she found herself phoning home more frequently. Just checking in, she'd say to Julian, sensing in the silence before he spoke the impropriety of her uncharacteristic behavior. Johnny had said he'd call, and she knew he would, although she still wasn't certain why. He was impressed by her power, she knew. As she waited for the message that would surely come, she collected anecdotes for him. She'd tell him about her spontaneous dance with Bobby Short at Eartha Kitt's opening at the plaza, her coverage of Grace Kelly's wedding the month before. At times she tried reminding herself that she was a journalist, not just New York's first woman Broadway columnist. Lindbergh kidnapping, shepherd murder, she counted the stories like beads. She didn't need any distraction, she told herself, not even a friendship or whatever it was with this boy. She resolved to do nothing, no sweet note of thanks, no more innocent calls to his record company. If she presented a passive front, then she wouldn't be disappointed, wouldn't be humiliated. She'd never been the type to kid herself. Even when years before she had hoped against hope that Tyrone Power would marry her, a solid part of her had known better and steeled her softer self against the truth. She felt no such protection now, only the pleasant glow of anticipation. Johnny had said he would call. A month after the party to the day, he did just that. They agreed to see an affair to remember, Johnny's idea. She told him about her misunderstanding with Vic Damone, who sang the title song, and how they were now great pals. It seemed important that he understand that not everyone she wrote about hated her. Although she and Dick had long since pursued other interests, she felt almost clandestine as she dressed for her movie date. Silly, she had many male friends. Was Ermin too much for a movie? Well, they would surely stop somewhere after. What about a hat? That cute black cloche that went with her Art Deco shoes. No, hats were for old ladies. Better to brush out her hair and let the wind take care of the rest. 
Did she need more perfume, at least on her wrists? And don't forget the backs of her knees. What did her father say to thwart any comparison to her and other female journalists? Feminine to her fingertips, and for tonight, at least, to her toes. In the end, she decided to tuck the folded cloche into her purse, just in case she needed it after all. For once, she was grateful that Dick had left the house before she did. Julian barely looked up as he summoned a cab for her and told her good night. The glaring New York cold made her grateful for the ermine and the knit dress beneath it. The rest of her apprehension vanished when she spotted Johnny's face. He waited for her outside P.J. Clark, standing under the flashing Michelob sign in a black topcoat and suit. As she stepped from the cab, he took both of her hands in his. Would you look at that, he said, as if boasting to someone else about her. They crushed against each other in the padded seats of the theater. He smelled of lime aftershave that complemented rather than covered his own brisk outdoor scent. He turned, and she felt his breath warm on her cheek. You smell gorgeous. Want a drink? Here? He shushed her softly as the credits began. In that frenetic way of his, he reached into his jacket and came out with a leather-covered flask. She looked from one side of the row of seats to the other, wondering what the penalty for such an act might be, how Sheila Graham might report it in her column. To hell with Sheila. This was a rare night, one she might never repeat, and she intended to enjoy it. With a shrug, she tilted and swallowed, thinking of prohibition, speakeasies, underage kids huddled at football games. The liquor carried that same illicit pleasure in its soft burn. She handed the flask to him and settled back to watch the film. So busy was she being a journalist that Dorothy seldom lost herself in any performance. This film, this night, was an exception. This was no Marty, no streetcar. It was a love story, and she couldn't remember the last time she'd seen one of those. She fought to keep the tears from her eyes, an endeavor that grew more difficult each time she took her turn at the flask. Beside her, she heard a loud sniff. She turned. Johnny blew into his handkerchief. The dim light from the screen illuminated his face, shiny with tears. She touched his wet cheek, finding it unexpectedly soft, almost delicate. He placed his palm over her hand, squeezed it, then pressed it against his lips. She turned back to the film wordlessly, and they sat like that, sobbing in earnest now, cheek to cheek, drunker than two people should be in a theater, her fingers pressed to his lips. Outside on the street, she clung to his arm, leaning into him as they walked. What an absolutely marvelous film, she said. I'm going to plug it in my column. People in all manners of dress hurried down the sidewalk toward their own destinations. They didn't notice them, didn't care. Johnny Ray, she thought, she was walking with Johnny Ray, his arm around her, and no one noticed. That'll be the day Dorothy Kilgallen plugging a love story, he said. No, I'm serious. She inhaled the thin, giddy air, trying to catch her breath. It's a boon, I'll say, to those of us who are getting tired of pictures about dope addicts, alcoholics, unattractive butchers, and men who sleep in their underwear. 
He took another swallow from the flask, the scent of vodka lingering in the cold air like perfume. I'll drink to that, although I liked Marty, cried all the way through it. Without removing his right hand from around her waist, he threw the flask into the air, catching it before it crashed to the gray sidewalk. I believe that, she said. You're impetuous, you know, and very, very sentimental. I always thought you faked the tears on stage. His arm tightened around her. I don't fake anything. Wish I could say that. She expected a laugh in return, a smile at least. She got nothing but a lingering, undecipherable look. Well, she could play the stare-down game, too. Better to meet his gaze this way than to let him focus too long on her now infamous profile. In a moment, he chuckled softly and turned away. I love to walk, he said. You? A waste of valuable time, she replied, grateful for conversation once more. We head north long enough, we'll reach Central Park. It sounded like an invitation. Above them, nearly full, the moon glowed as if lit from within by candles. She remembered the hotown beat and corny lyrics of a terrible song he'd once recorded. Didn't you sing something about walking home? Other than the obvious one, that is. A duet with Doris Day, bless her. Let's walk that away. Don't judge either of us by it. With every step, her feet were further shredded by the frivolous shoes in which she'd never walked farther than the distance between a maitre d' and the best seat in the house. Well, don't get any ideas about trekking through the park tonight. I never have, and I don't intend to start now. What kind of New Yorker are you? One without sore feet. He laughed and slid his hand to her elbow as they crossed the street. Someday I'll pick you up, you put on a pair of pants, and we'll stroll the park. You'll see me in hell before you see me in slacks. Her voice brushed over the word, stopping short of a slur. You okay, he asked. She shrugged and tried for a bright smile. She longed for a warm room, a cold drink, some time to reflect on this odd night, this man. A little high, I'm afraid. This is the time I get started. A challenge. She took it. I'm Irish. I can keep up. He nodded approval and steered her through the couples crowding the street. Then follow me, girl. I want you to hear a cat who's a friend of mine. Anyone I know? Count Basie. He said it almost shyly. Now he was the one trying to impress her, but she was having too much fun to care. At least everyone at the Copa would be as drunk as they. And if they weren't, if she showed up in Sheila's lousy excuse for a column, it was better than what they'd been printing about her lately. Much better. She grinned up at the smoky moon and hurried to keep up with him, her fragile heels clicking on the sidewalk. I'd love to see the count with you, she said. So let your hair down and go. Friends, that was Bonnie Hearn Hill and her husband Larry reading from Johnny Ray and Miss Kilgallen. Let's set a few of these individuals into perspective. Dorothy Kilgallen was a very popular journalist and radio and TV entertainer around the 50s and 60s. She wrote a daily column entitled The Voice of Broadway, all about the comings and goings of the theater and society crowd. 
She and her husband, Dick Colmar, also had a successful daily national radio show, which was kind of a snappy repartee talk show. But beyond all that, she is perhaps best remembered for being a perennial panel member on one of America's most beloved TV quiz shows entitled, What's My Line? Now, her husband, Dick Colmar, who I said appeared with her on her radio show, was the original Boston Blackie on another radio series of the same name. He's credited with bringing the term hubba hubba into use. He owned a number of nightclubs, but unfortunately seemed to have been pretty much of an alcoholic. Unfortunately, he committed suicide soon after Dorothy Kilgallen's death. Now, Johnny Ray was a very successful musician and singer. When he was just a youngster, he was at a Boy Scout jamboree, entered in a blanket toss, and a piece of straw pierced his eardrum, and that unfortunately lost him 50% of his hearing. That's why it's so remarkable that he became such a successful musician. It was said of him that once he heard a song, he could go over to the piano and play it. He openly admitted to being bisexual. In 1951, he recorded two songs that he became famous for, Cry and The Little Cloud That Cried. Cry became the number one hit song in America for 11 weeks running. He also was one of the first performers to remove the mic from the stand and roam around the stage, sometimes known even to actually weep on stage. What Bonnie Hearn Hill and her husband Larry have given us tonight is a preview of what their book is all about, the rather bizarre relationship between three famous people. Johnny Ray thinks and talks in the vernacular of a pop singer, Dorothy Kilgallen, extremely intelligent, middle-aged, urbane, flirtatious, seems to want to relive her youth, not afraid of what a relationship with a man like Johnny Ray might bring. And her husband, Dick Colmar, quick-witted, a verbal fencer, a man who works out his frustrations by drinking. And so we come to the end of another segment of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our writer will be Mary Benton. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. Mm-hmm.